Welcome to the Untold Podcast, capturing the culture's imagination through speculative fiction. I'm your host, Nathan James Norman. Well, welcome to the inaugural episode of the monthly podcast featuring short speculative fiction from a Christian worldview. Speculative fiction is a rather broad term, so month after month we'll feature science fiction, fantasy, horror, supernatural thrillers, and prairie romances. <laughs> I'm just kidding about the prairie romances. The Untold Podcast will never feature prairie romances, unless, of course, it's about space aliens trying to romance some prairie gals and whatever the Christian equivalent of Yoda shows up. Then I suppose we'll feature it. So, we're currently taking story and music submissions. Head over to our website for all the details. We can't pay anything, but if your story is selected, you'll have all the bragging rights that goes along with having your story read by an obscure pastor who lives in an obscure city and produces an obscure podcast. Uh, that's me. I'm, I'm, I'm the obscure pastor. Yeah. Anyway, this month's story is The Final Revelation by myself, Nathan James Norman. In subsequent episodes, I would take this time to tell you about the author in the third person, but because Nathan James Norman doesn't really like talking about himself in the third person, I'm going to go ahead and tell you about myself. I'm a fiction writer with a number of novel, stage, and screen credits to my name, as well as a pastor in a small but amazing church in northern Michigan. Husband and owner of two cats, Daisy and Duncan, who was named after the Highlander. Uh, Duncan, that is. Daisy was named after a flower. Yeah, that, that, that one was my wife's idea. So now, without further ado, I present to you The Final Revelation by Nathan James Norman. The message appeared the day after the world declared God dead. Not that he ever existed, but humanity finally, under one language, realized they had outgrown their need for the concept of God. Then, all at once, even though no one quite saw it happen, the message appeared in the sky, visible from nearly every point on the surface of the earth. I am here. The message repeated itself in thousands of locations, the blue text, several shades darker than the sky on a sunny day, became obscure during twilight, disappeared during the night, and reappeared in the midst of dawn every day. Several scientific inquiries were launched, including a specially modified spacecraft that flew right through the text in an attempt to gather material from the message's makeup. When that proved inconclusive, the Rayleigh's scattering phenomenon was re-examined. Tests continued to be confounded. Trillions of dollars spent in a mere half-century yielded no results. Perhaps the message was a result of the rebuilding process of the ozone layer, which had begun a decade before the appearance. Perhaps the nitrogen in the air had somehow changed its molecular structure slightly. Perhaps there was something wrong with the sun. 
As generations died out and new ones took their places, children stopped asking their parents, Why is the sky blue? And instead asked, Why does the sky say, I am here? And when parents responded, I don't know. It was not out of their own ignorance. It was out of the ignorance of the whole world. The year 2500, Common Era. Be reasonable, Gregory. Dr. David Dreyer sat across from his colleague and friend. He was starving because a temporary lapse in the Epsilon space station's gravity module had shut down the station for four hours and delayed his lunch appointment with Gregory. Normally, the doctor would have abandoned the conversation when his base needs growled against his higher intellect, but today his friend was making a catastrophic decision. I have debated this with myself for the last ten years, David. My decision is the only rational one to be had. Gregory collected a section of iceberg lettuce onto his fork and continued eating. Gregory, stop eating! David pounded his fist on the table. Gregory shoveled another hunk of lettuce into his mouth and took several moments to chew the mouthful, then swallowed. I skipped breakfast this morning, and with the gravity loss today... David shook his head. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm hungry too, but I'm more concerned for you, Gregory. If you do this, if you go down this road, you'll lose your position in the fellowship and your job. He paused for a moment. And, and how do Jack and Jessica feel about all of this? Putting his fork down, Gregory picked up his napkin and wiped his face. Jessica said she'd leave me if I went through with all of this. Jack pretty much said the same. <laughs> there, you see, David said. You've told me on more than once and more than one occasion that Jessica is your soulmate. And Jack, <laughs> and Jack walked you through your alcoholism. I know what they mean to me, Gregory said. For man's sake, Gregory, I can look out that window there and the message says, Ira ma I. David pointed towards the end of the restaurant to the curved window on the bulkhead. If it really was a message, why couldn't I read it from up here? Didn't God know we would colonize the moon? And why was the message on Mars? When we first landed, there was a message in the sky for a dead world with no intelligent life. Why would God communicate with non-intelligence? Gregory leaned back in his chair. <sighs> 300 years ago, those words appeared in the sky, David. We have studied the phenomenon since the day it appeared. We have no answers. Using all the tools of philosophy, I can come to no other conclusion. <laughs> we have no answers yet, David corrected. Just because we don't have the answer now does not mean there is no answer. There is an answer, Gregory leaned in. Only science cannot provide it. And I think philosophy can only get me part of the way there. David sighed. 
So you think these cults that have popped up all over the surface have the answers. Nodding, Gregory stood up. Some of them do. David stood up and walked around the table. But is it worth losing your career, your position, alienating your friends, and and losing the ones you love? Gregory sat back down. He put his head into his hands for a moment, fighting back the urge to cry. He looked back up to David. If keeping everything I love means pretending to believe something I don't, then yes. Pushing his chair away, Gregory walked towards the exit. Where are you going? David asked. Gregory turned back. Back to Earth. To stare at the message in the sky? David frowned. Are you going to find the answers contemplating the heavens? No. Gregory shook his head. I'm going to travel between each of these so-called cults and find the answers I know are out there. <sighs> but you'll lose everything, David pointed at him. You'll live in poverty. Gregory smiled. If it leads me to the truth, it's worth it. The Year 2800, Common Era The weather was near perfect, as it always was. Jeremiah still pulled on his sports coat over his shoulders, not because he was trying to get dressed up, but because 21 degrees Celsius was just a bit too cold for him under the Amazonas Planchia Dome on Mars. Abigail, let's go, he shouted down the stairs into their sleeping quarters. Moments later, Abigail ascended. Her hair hung straight under a small white kerchief, missing the usual braiding. Jeremiah grabbed her chin and lifted her hair. Why aren't you wearing any earrings? Abigail pushed his hand away. I told you we were going to the Revenant Church this morning. And I seem to remember telling you no. Jeremiah grabbed her wrist. Twisting free, she pushed past him to the door and slid the handle to the side, then up. The pneumatic door hissed as it pushed out, then slid to the side. Before her husband could exit their home, Abigail pleaded with him. I just want to go see it once, just this once. Please? Turning, Jeremiah grit his teeth. I already told you no. Why not? she asked. Because, he said. It's two domes away. I spend all week traveling the tubes, and I don't want to spend my only day off in the tubes. But there's less traffic on Sunday, Abigail retorted. He turned from her again and walked through the door. Our church here is just fine. He stepped out. A breeze of reacclimated air hit him, and he smiled, glad that he put on his coat. Then he glanced over his shoulder. Why do you want to go anyways? Abigail got excited, because they were the first. They were the first church to form after the message appeared. They were the first group to see it for what it was. The other denominations are just copycats. So you're willing to give up wearing earrings and makeup to go to a church because it was first? He asked. 
not because they're the first, because they're right. They follow the message correctly. They've been following God longer than any of the other churches, Abigail said. Jeremiah looked up at the orange sky and the orange message through the protective dome overhead. Then he turned to his wife. Being the first is not always the best. He looked back up at the sky. And I like you with your hair all made up and wearing jewelry. Well, well, I don't. Other men look at me, she said. And, and I don't always like the way you look at me when I'm wearing jewelry. What? Jeremiah stared at her. I'm your husband. I can, I, I should look at you however I want. Abigail touched her husband's arm. According to Reverend Michael, it is good to be married and for a man to not touch his woman. Hitting her hand away, Jeremiah spit. I thought I told you not to go to that church. She backed away, just inside the doorframe. I, 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 I didn't. I haven't. I've been listening to him in the mind wave. <sighs> well, that's just as bad. Jeremiah took a step towards her, and she backed into the house. Abigail pleaded. Please, Jeremiah, please. You'd like Reverend Michael. One of his ancestors founded the church just after the message appeared. He says that God has given him and his family visions of the truth every day since. <laughs> Why would I like that? He pushed his way into the door. We go to a good church. They read scripture. They don't meddle in our personal lives. What more do we want? Take it another step back, Abigail moved past the foyer into the modest living room. You don't really care about going to church anyway. Can't you just make me happy? She paused. You like him, Jeremiah. He says that wives have to do whatever their husbands tell them to do. Jeremiah said, What if I tell you to wear makeup and jewelry? N no, no, you, you can't tell me to do anything against our teaching, she said. Our teaching, he asked, then raised his voice. Our teaching? How long have you been listening to this lunatic? Abigail threw herself onto her knees. With her face to the ground, she began to chant, I am here, I am here, I am here. What are you doing? Jeremiah yelled. Abigail's chant turned into a scream, I am here, I am here, I am here. Grabbing her by the arm, Jeremiah yanked his wife to her feet. Stop it! I am here, I am here, I am here! Jeremiah put his hand over her mouth. Stop it! Halting for only a moment, Abigail bit his hand and returned to the floor when he let go. I am here, I am here, I am here! He grabbed Abigail by her hair and dragged her across the living room and through the foyer as her relentless chanting continued through screams and gasps for air. With his hand clenched tight around her hair, Jeremiah pulled her down the stairs to their sleeping quarters. Abigail slipped and fell, but never stopped her chanting. Abigail bounced down, stair after stair, her body crashing into the railing and wall. I am here, I am here, I am here. Then Abigail hit the bottom of the stairs, and the chanting stopped. Jeremiah stooped over her body and shook her. Now look what you made me do. 
he ascended the steps and stepped outside with his sports jacket still on. Standing in the doorway of his home, he looked up past the dome and to the message. I am here, blazing against the orange Martian sky. How about you stay up there and I'll stay down here, he said to no one in particular. You do what you want up there and I'll do what I want down here. Jeremiah slid the door closed behind him and headed for the church, hoping the pastor would take his side again, if Abigail ever woke up. The Year 4000 Common Era Pushing into the basal lamina, Dr. Lee issued a command. Inject 3% coloring. Inside the translucent membrane, various blues began filling the cell, allowing Emily Beckett and the rest of her fifth grade class to see the nuances of the cell stretch beyond the horizons of their vision. Behind her, a wall of blue membrane blocked her view outside of the cell. Looking past the laminin, she could see the cell alive with movement. Directly in front of the class, over what looked like 300 meters, a massive ribosome strung together proteins in perfect clockwork timing. Emily shifted around one of the students to try and view a few other structures on the horizon, but the ribosome blocked her view of most of the rest of the cell, and she only caught glimpses of movement from behind the protein machine. If we were standing here in a cell from 2,000 years ago, we would be seeing something completely different. Dr. Lee pointed to the dark blue laminin structure in front of the group. The alpha chain would be a straight line, and the beta and gamma chains would come out from either side, creating a connective structure that roughly resembled a cross. A loud crash followed by two yelps came from behind the group. Dr. Lee pushed through the students and saw Alex Richards and Johnny Com sprawled on the floor, glistening in membrane from head to toe. Johnny, Alex, I thought I told you two to be careful when walking around in here today. Alex pushed Johnny off of him and stood up. He tried to brush himself off, but the membrane just smeared across his clothes and hands. Ew, gross, he looked up. How do I get this off, Dr. Lee? Dr. Lee shook his head. You don't, Alex. We're going to have to burn your clothes and carefully bathe you in acetone. What? Alex yelled and stepped forward towards Dr. Lee. The doctor put up his hand. Don't touch me. Or anyone else. Help Johnny up. Flopping back onto the ground, Alex yanked Johnny up. Webs of membrane were strung between the two of them. Even though she was pretty far off from the scene, Emily took an extra step back, glad that the school had given her disposable cleats for today's class. When Alex and Johnny finally got to their feet, Dr. Lee instructed them, I want you to step into the gateway device, take out the breathing units from the corners of your mouths, and press that button while holding your breath. Do you think you can do that? The boys nodded and stepped onto the graded platform that had brought the students here a few minutes ago. 
With their field trip cut short, Alex, then Johnny, removed their breathing units and hit the button. A bubble appeared and shimmered around the gateway device, lifted off the ground and pulled itself through the basal lamina before disappearing out of sight. They'll send another one along in a few moments, Dr. Lee reassured his class before turning back to the laminin structure they had come to learn about. As I was saying, when we look at cells that were preserved from 2,000 years ago, laminin was a simple cross shape. But now it has become a much more complex system, where the alpha chain stretches and curves into 11 well-formed interconnected walls. Emily raised her hand. It looks like it says, I am here. Emily, it's a structure inside a cell. It cannot say anything because it has no mind or vocal cords. Dr. Lee chided and the class erupted into laughter. Rolling her eyes, the fifth grader tried again. It spells a message with words then. The teacher smiled. Class, do you think this is a message? More laughter followed. Emily, there are no individual letters here. One structure flows into another. Our minds try to make logical sense of the things we see, Dr. Lee reminded his student. So when you see words here, it is nothing more than your mind trying to impose meaning on what it cannot understand. Putting her hand on her hips, Emily blurted out, My dad says it's a message from God. This time, the class didn't need a comment from Dr. Lee to erupt into laughter. After a moment, the teacher put his hands up to quiet the class. Emily Beckett, that line of thought is exactly what halted scientific inquiry for nearly a thousand years. We would have colonized well beyond the solar system by now if religion hadn't stopped us. He turned to the class. Does anyone know what the manifestation of the laminin's change in the sky and here in the cell actually means? Hands shot up in the air. Jill, Dr. Lee said. Jill cleared her throat. throat) It's a clear indication that we as a human species, along with other forms of life, are continuing to evolve. Very good, Jill, the teacher turned back to Emily. The change in the laminin was not a message from a deity, but the next step in our evolution. Do you understand? Emily looked down and nodded. Good. Then we can move on. Dr. Lee turned towards the laminin, but Gretchen, one of the other students, spoke up. Dr. Lee, do we have cells from older things, like like dinosaurs? She asked. Of course, he said. So, so is their laminin different from the laminin that was shaped like a cross? Gretchen wondered. Dr. Lee looked at her square on. No. Then turned to try and complete their lesson time inside the cell. Gretchen interrupted him, though. But if a change in laminin is an indication of evolution, why shouldn't we see different forms of it earlier in Earth history? She asked. Smiling, Dr. Lee shook his head. We don't have an answer for that. Yet. But maybe earlier forms of evolution 
had different markers that didn't involve laminin. Maybe this is a new form of evolution, a process we've never undergone before. Emily spoke up again. Could, could the change in laminin just, just be a message with, with a scientific explanation? Dr. Lee sighed. No, Emily. That would be mixing religion and science, superstition and facts. They cannot be mixed together. I, I don't see why they can't inform each other, Emily said. The teacher mumbled under his breath. And that's why you have a D in my class. He raised his voice. We're through with questions, class. We need to move ahead with our lesson for the day. Dr. Lee turned to the message and spent the next half hour using science to explain how the structure held every cell in the universe together. The year 10,000, Common Era. The sun had less than 50 years of energy left to sustain the earth at sufficient levels. Anya and Griffith piloted their sun catcher to a relative stop inside the star-forming UDFY-3813-5539 galaxy. The stars here were younger, smaller, and less dense than in other galaxies, and with only the inner planets and planetoids inhabited, the outer stars on the rim of UDFY-3813-5539 were ideal for the preservation of the home planet. Anya and Griffith's suncatcher, one in a fleet of ships designed to gather star energy, would help repower the sun and thus the home planet in their collection mission. Bring, Bring us, us to, to the, the red, red supergiant, supergiant. Griffith ordered Anya. I don't see it, she thought to him, keeping her resentment for the commander of the two-person ship to herself. Reaching across her lap, Griffith pointed to the star on the swirling disk that represented UDFY-3813-5539. Anya touched the red supergiant, and the small vessel twisted its hull, oozing towards the star. He thought to her, We've, We've been, been working, working together, together for almost 20 years, years and, and you still, still haven't bothered trying to master stellar cartography. He followed his thought with a ping indicating his sarcasm. It's, it's only, only been 18, she thought back to him, and I've already mastered 22 levels of stellar cartography. You keep changing the computer's displays. He ignored her thoughts. Are the collectors properly calibrated for the supergiant's energies? Griffith sent the thought to Anya's receptors. Anya nodded. Griffith's smile flashed his canines. Good, he thought to her. We should be able to partially drain a brown dwarf after we're done here. Do you see the star I'm talking about? I do, she said. His frown to her was almost a snarl. Keep your words to yourself. Anya pinged Griffith's systems, then turned her blockers on. Hey, uh, okay, I'm sorry, Anya, I... I get tense before collecting. Griffith extended his hand. Taking his hand, Anya smiled back. Apology accepted. 
she dropped her blockers and repinged his system with her updated status. Approaching the Red Star, their contacts darkened in increments until they reached the 15 million kilometer point, and their ship came to a halt. The outer membrane of the ship shimmered red, reflecting the light from the star. Griffith turned to Anya. Engage the collector. Pressing a glyph on the hovering council in front of her, the outer membrane shot out away from the core of the ship. It sloughed off in sheets no thicker than a single cell. Wave after wave of the membrane unraveled itself from the main compartment. Several hours passed before the ship was noticeably smaller, but Griffith and Anya still had a full day before the unraveling process would be complete. They took turns napping while the other monitored the inner hull temperature, the membrane's integrity, and its progression around the celestial body. Minutes before the membrane would completely surround the star, Griffith smiled at Anya. It's really a thing of beauty, isn't it? I assumed you did not believe in beauty, she thought to him. Well, philosophically, I see no evidence for objective beauty. He looked back at the red star, which was now completely surrounded by the ship's membrane. But in a subjective sense, I do find it beautiful. It almost makes you wish the ancient myths were true, even if it was for just a moment, Anya thought. Griffith thought. Maybe some of the myths. He sent a redundancy to emphasize some. Thinking back over the mythology she had learned when she was a little girl, Anya tried to drink in all the memories from that aspect of her education. She found that she could not remember all the details after nearly 500 years, but the emotions the myths had stirred stayed with her and filled her so much that she said, no, all of them. The message written in the sky above every planet, the objective beauty, the hope, the design, the purpose. There, there is, is no, no purpose. purpose. There never was. Griffith thought to her just as the ship pinged them both, informing them that it was ready to begin collecting. Anya spoke. Obviously, there is no objective purpose, but there is the purpose that we decide to give our lives. There, there isn't, isn't even subjective, subjective purpose, purpose, Anya, he thought. She thought back. Then, then there, there is, is no subjective, subjective beauty. Griffith looked back at the sun. I suppose not. Well, well I, I think, think there's, there's still a subjective, subjective beauty and purpose, she thought. Think about it, he shot back. If, if there, there is, is no objective, objective beauty, then how can there be subjective beauty? beauty? If, if there, there is, is no objectivity, objectivity then, then the subjectivity, subjectivity is meaningless. It's meaningful because I give it meaning. Anya pinged the word, I. And who are you? Griffith pinged every word. Who are you in all the universe? You work a menial job on a sun catcher. 500 years of life and all you can manage. Anya put up her blockers. She didn't bother to ping Griffith's system with the updated information. Her hand moved to begin the collection process, but stopped when Griffith began shouting at her. Life has no purpose, Anya, and no beauty. I'm done with this discussion, Griffith, she said. Why? Are you going to go back to your mythology? Are you going to pretend like your life has any more meaning than the billions and billions of colonized worlds? 
Spit flew out of his mouth. Stop talking, she said. No, you can block my thoughts, but you can't block my words, Anya. His fists clenched. You are not beautiful, Anya, just like me. Your life has no purpose, just like mine. Stop, she said. Not until you realize that your only purpose in this universe is to live, die, and have your body shoveled into the nearest sun. It doesn't matter who hurt you. It doesn't matter who said you were beautiful. It doesn't matter who thought they loved you. Your life, all life, has no purpose. Anya turned her chair away, tears forming in her eyes, hands trembling. She bent down to a tray that housed their tools inside a protective green gel. She pulled out a small, gray handle from the gel. Griffith ground his teeth, ignoring the pings from his own system, warning him of the dental damage he was causing. The ship also pinged him repeatedly to begin the collection process. He touched the glyph, and the process began. This has no meaning, thought Anya. Griffith spun around in his chair just as Anya depressed the handle. A blast of orange and blue superheated liquid helium sprayed from the tool. This has no meaning. His right eye sputtered and popped. This has no meaning. The system pinged him warnings that costly repairs would have to be made to his eye and cranium. This has no meaning. His toes tingled, then he lost feeling in his legs. This has no meaning. His system warned him that he was incurring permanent brain damage. This has no meaning. Griffith saw red. Then he saw black. Then he saw no more. Releasing the handle, the tool turned off and dropped onto the floor. Anya stared at the red splotches of blood covering Griffith's body, the floor, her clothes. Then the red energies from the star flowed above and below and around her, blocking her view of the stars beyond, swirling her world with thicker and thicker layers of red. The council in front of Anya was caked in dry, rust-red splotches as she continued to monitor the progress of the collection. Griffith's body smelled, even at the back of the compartment where she had dragged it several hours ago. The collection process was almost completed, and she would jettison him along with the refuse as soon as she left the sector. As the collection slowed, then stopped, the message became visible through the membrane of the ship and would remain with Anya as she disposed of Griffith, lied to her superiors about his disappearance, and returned to Earth with the rest of the fleet to repower the Earth.
the year 492,000, Common Era. Then the message stopped. On every planet, in every galaxy, in every quadrant, the communal eye conducted an image of the message to all minds. As one, all of humanity beheld as the dark blue message above the skies of every moon, planet, and outpost shook, then split apart before dissipating. The worlds cracked to pieces. The continents of the worlds collapsed. The mountains crumbled to dust. And just like the message, and the worlds, and the continents, and the mountains in turn, the eyes and arms, toes and heads, fibers and molecules of every living thing split and grew apart and dissipated into eternity. The final revelation had been delivered and ignored. Well, that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. This story came from a question I once heard that asked, can God do anything beyond what he's already done to prove his existence? And from the story, the answer is no. The Red Sea was parted, the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and walked among us, and the Holy Spirit is actively convincing the world of sin and righteousness and still men and women do not believe. We have more evidence than we need if we could just stop playing Command and Conquer long enough to go looking for it. What's that, you say? People haven't played that franchise in over a decade? <laughs> yeah, well, let me tell you, you're listening to radio dramas, and those went out of style how long ago? <laughs> Joke's on you. I just want to take a moment here and thank you for listening to our pilot episode. I'm sure you can tell this is a work in progress as I learned the technical ins and outs of this sort of thing. <laughs> hey, I mean, we didn't even have a pop filter in this episode until 4000 AD or um, CE or uh, whatever. It, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is that now I can say my P's and my B's with confidence. Podcast, 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 barista, barista, bullet time, bullet time. <laughs> That's all for today. Please be sure to tell your friends and submit some material to be featured on the show. Until next time, I'm Nathan James Norman, leaving you with my favorite line from the story. Children stopped asking their parents, why is the sky blue? And instead, asked, why did the sky say, I am here? 